according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs chapter 20. We're getting to the end of the chapter. And we've got some tough things we're going to deal with. So hopefully today we'll do real well with it. And we'll look at verse 27 because we're going to talk about some principles of biblical anthropology. Okay? And biblical anthropology, describing body, soul, and spirit as created by God, as presented in Genesis. And so um, kind of interesting now that we've launched our Genesis series and we hit a, a verse like this here in Proverbs that connects so well with some of the Genesis material we have coming up that I think it's going to be beneficial for us to take a look at it and to see what it means to be a lamp. And because the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord searching all the innermost parts of his being. Light exposes things, and that's a good thing. Uh, Darkness hides things, and uh, light exposes things. And if you love the light, if you love God and and the the benefit of his word in your life, then this should be a thrill. You should want the light to expose everything. You come to the light. But if you hate God and you hate that kind of exposure and you're more comfortable in your sin, well then men are going to love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. And this is what the, uh, the Scripture describes. So anyway, we'll deal with that here today. Before we do start, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege that it is to study, to show ourselves approved. And Father, we ask that we might come before your word this morning in humility to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. Father, we we pray that any pride or selfishness or arrogance, any attitudinal barriers to uh, receiving the word implanted, Father, pray that you would remove those far from us. This is why we we, uh, start with prayer. This is why we start by making sure we're in fellowship and adjusted to your absolute standard. Father, we don't claim to have all the answers. We don't claim to know everything. We just, uh, we're, uh, we're, we're ignorant children learning, trying to learn a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. So Father, we thank you for this blessing and this privilege one more time to, uh, to open your word and to receive your truth. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, here with Proverbs, I think last week we were dealing with some of the political issues there in verse 26, and we try not to be overly political. Uh, but when you come to a principle of Scripture that's portrayed here like this, the, uh, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. That uh, if you have wicked people in your culture, in your society, and they're wreaking havoc and they're doing terrible things like rioting and burning things down and shooting police officers, then you can't just pretend it's not happening and you can't cover for it. You can't lie about it. You can't say, oh, it's, a, it's just a peaceful protest when it's not a peaceful protest. You're burning down buildings. You're shooting police officers. That's not a peaceful protest. And so a wise king is going to stop that. A wise king is not going to put up with that in, uh, in any respect. So human government is wise to punish wicked people under their dominion. That's why we have government. 
And uh, when you start to realize the laws of divine establishment as God has provided it, starting with personal volition, that each of us human beings in the image of God have standards of right and wrong that are built into our conscience, the facet of our soul called conscience, plus we have accountability before God and His revealed Word to adjust our lives accordingly. And so uh, we have personal volition and we make decisions and we face consequences. And that's the first of the principles of, of divine establishment that God put into the human race right at the beginning, right in Genesis. Whether you're saved or not, whether you're in fellowship or out of fellowship, you're a human being in the image of God and these laws of divine establishment are applicable. Likewise, marriage. <laughs> marriage is interesting because in marriage, what do you have? You have two volitions. And so the first uh, law of divine establishment that centers on humanity and volition, now we have to limit that because now you have two volitions in the picture. And you might have noticed in the, in the application of marriage, you can't always get what you want, that there's a, a give and take, there's a prefer and a defer, and uh, the, the operation that happens there. And then you have an order where you have leadership and you have submission. Of course, that gets hated today because the, 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 the feminists and feminist Christians don't like the, the order that God built into marriage and the role of the husband in leadership and the role of the wife in submission. But that's the role, that's the design that glorifies Jesus Christ and portrays Christ in the church. And then you have family. And the, the third law of divine establishment is family. And here now we have multiple volitions. And we have sovereignty that disciplines the children. And if you don't, you got trouble. <laughs> okay? If the children are running the family, it's like the lunatics running the asylum, and you got to stop that. You got to realize that parents were designed to nurture the children, to train them up, to equip them to be adults. And until they are adults, they need the hand of discipline over them. And Proverbs has been telling us this again and again and again, how foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and how the rod is necessary to remove it far from him. And, and so each of these boundaries is designed, all right? And so parents, the parents of those children, a father and a mother in the covenant of marriage, that they are the best for raising those children, not the government. Okay? Government's the fourth divine institution. And it does not coerce volition and it does not, um, it does not actually set the law for marriage. Our government's crossing the line there. Uh, nor family, nor child raising and all of that. You put these things in the proper order. Then you have nationalism and the principles of nationalism, including borders, including language, including uh, everything that the Tower of Babel establishes. So really the first 11 chapters of Genesis are fundamental and foundational. We have to study it, we have to conform to it, and be prepared to be rejected and hated. Because everything this world is gearing up to uh, right now is hostile to Genesis 1-11. through 11. And so when you defend the biblical norms and standards, you will be called all kinds of things. Any, any of it. Uh, what verse 26 is highlighting here is the principle of human government that punishes wicked people. That is a government function, not a family function, not a marriage function, not a volition function. We don't take it upon ourselves to, uh, to be uh, an avenger of, uh, to be a vigilante and, and an avenger of right and wrong in, in our society. That's not our role. And uh, we went through the aspects there, even including capital punishment for capital offenses. 
The loss of life is the judicial function for those that have attacked God's principle of life. All right, so moving on from there, we've got to look at Adamic breath, the breath of man, the ruch of man, the nishmath Adam that we have here. And there's two words that are uh, largely related, but they're different, so we, we have to distinguish between them. The ruch is the word for spirit, the shama, the nishmath is the word for breath. And uh, oftentimes they are linked together. So when the Bible links them together, we recognize the link, but we, of course, still distinguish between them. They're not purely synonymous. My breathing is not my human spirit, all right? But, the, but both are true. I, my physical body does take in oxygen. I do breathe in my mortal physical body, but my human spirit is a different issue. And largely these terms get employed in parallel because they get employed in, in poetic tandems and we can uh, understand that as well. Alright, so Proverbs twenty twenty seven: the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. And this is the nishmath, as it says in the verse here, <clears throat> the ger Yahweh, I'm sorry, the ner Yahweh. N-E-R, the word for lamp, Yahweh, the, the Tetragrammaton, the most holy name for the Lord, Ner Yahweh, the lamp of the Lord, Nishmath Adam, the breath of Adam, the breath of man. And of course, the first man is named Adam. This is where it comes from. So the uh, spiritual life of humanity is, according to this verse, the lamp of God's light. So if you don't, if your spiritual, uh, if your human spirit is dead, if you're an unbeliever, if you don't have spiritual life, then you don't have, you are not the lamp that God can use to deposit His light to then shine it forth in this fallen world. But if you are saved, if you do have a living human spirit, if you do have the nishmath alive within you, then you are suited to be the vessel, the conduit, the, the depository. Okay? And remember, a lamp is not a, a, a light originating source. A lamp is something that contains fuel and, and, and uh, a lamp is, is something that contains that which burns and that, that then shines forth. Understand there's a difference. That this is specifically the word lamp. There's a reason for that. There's a reason also too why the Holy Spirit has the metaphor of oil so frequently in Scripture. And the Holy Spirit being pictured as oil and our living human spirit being pictured as a lamp. You can combine these, these metaphors together, these pictures together, and it really forms a neat blessing for us to understand in regenerate humanity what our role is to image God and to proclaim truth into this, uh, to this lost and dying world. So let's, uh, let's start with these verses and, and uh, recognize this, why spiritual life is necessary. <clears throat> not and spiritual life, by the way, is being saved. It's not having the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. We, that's entirely different. That's limited to the church age. The, the bride of Christ, the church, we are the only dispensation that has enjoyed the permanent universal indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. So that can't be the spiritual life that takes in the Word of God and, and is a lamp that the Old Testament talks about. All right. So uh, let's look at Genesis 2-7 and we'll talk about the spiritual life of humanity. 
Genesis 2, verses 4 and following is the follow-up to Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. All right, we have two creation accounts, and that's by design. The larger one that's panoramic, the, the second one that's uh, more focused, more detailed. They don't contradict, we harmonize them just fine, but we want to recognize that there's different purposes for describing uh, creation in the different accounts that we have. So 1, 1 through 2, 3 is a complete account, and it's unfortunate that we've got a chapter division there that ends with the sixth day and uh, takes verses 1 through 3 there and uh, puts it in a different chapter. I'd prefer to take chapter 1 all the way down to verse 3 and then start chapter 2 with what we have here in verse 4, but that's all right. Um, Starting in verse 4, this is the Toledoth of the heavens and the earth when they were created, bara, in the day that the Lord God, Nasa, made earth and heaven. We're going to break that vocabulary down for you when we get to that point here in Genesis. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So God was doing things in a certain order for a certain reason. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So right away we have mist or moisture or water that's coming up from the ground. And then we have the dust, which God, which dust is dry, right? You have dust that's being gathered and shaped into a body but that dust body is not yet alive. It comes from the ground. It's going to need water. It's going to need moisture. It's going to need life. Then the Lord God formed man. And the forming, by the way, is neither bara nor asa. It is a separate verb, and we'll study that one as well. Forming man, Adam, of dust from the ground and breathed. Now here's the verb uh, where we get the noun for nishmath, where we get the noun for the nashama, the breath of life. God did the breathing, okay? Which means it came from within him and it entered into us, okay? Now God's not physical, it doesn't have lungs, but nevertheless, as a metaphor, as a verb that describes what God is doing, that the breath came from the source of God, came from no other source. It did not come from the earth, it didn't come from the dust, it didn't come from the the deep, it didn't come from anywhere. And it wasn't pre-existing, floating in heaven somewhere as a disembodied soul. It's the breath of God that produced, that bara created the living being. So the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the nashama, the breath of lives, plural. Not life singular, lives, plural. And the full multifaceted reality of our living existence is contained in the plurality of these lives that God breathed into the, into the dust uh, body, the dust uh, body that he had made. And so receiving God's breath, man became a living soul, a living nefesh. And the, the terms between nefesh for soul and ruch for spirit and all these other expressions that relate to Adamic humanity are what form the basis of a biblical anthropology. Okay? 
It's amusing to me somewhat that uh, when you say the word anthropology, that uh, most secular people you talk to, they're immediately going to be thinking about some college course or some uh, evolutionary book or some, uh, you know, Lucy uh, Australopithecus uh, thing that, uh, that Leakey found or something. They're going to have a, a, an atheistic, anti-God understanding of anthropology. And with a flawed anthropology comes a flawed homardiology, doctrine of sin, comes a flawed soteriology, and it's just a, it's a mess after that. <clears throat> so here we have it. All right, we have other references to this, such as Job 32.8. This is a marvelous text that parallels the ruch with the nishmath, the, the spirit with the breath. But the sp- it is a spirit in man. And the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The fact is that God breathes and we receive that spiritual life. If God takes away that life, the body expires. Also, the capacity for understanding is linked to spirit, not soul. It's linked to spirit. Okay. Now there's a rationality of the soul. The human soul can process data. The human soul can think. There is a rational process involved in the soul. You have unbelievers and they are soulish. And they can be very rational. They can be extremely rational. They can also be irrational. They cannot be spiritual. That's the difference. And you can process information rationally. You can process information spiritually. And for spiritual information you have to do both which is why the unbeliever is not equipped to process spiritual information. So it is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. 1 Corinthians 2. Eleven through 13. <clears throat> Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, The thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So in our spiritual processes, in the spiritual thinking, this is why it's it's only the Lord can look upon the heart. Only the Lord can look upon the, the core of your being. Satan can't do it. No fallen angel can do it. No human being can do it. Now we have received not the spirit of the cosmos, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Now this, by the way, that should not be capital S, it's unfortunate. The New American Standard Bible has taken an editorial decision, taken the position that because the Greek text uses the the word pneuma there, they've decided it applies to God the Holy Spirit. But the same pneuma applies to our human spirit, it's the same Greek word. It's the same Hebrew word in the Old Testament. The word spirit means spirit, and you have to determine theologically. You have to determine by context. You have to determine by uh, parallel passages and and the the full testimony of of all of Scripture. Is this talking about, it could be God the Holy Spirit, it could be the living human spirit, it could be be, uh, an angel, an angelic being. they're, They're very frequently called spirits. Demons are called spirits, even though they're not angels. They're also called spirits, all right? The disembodied spirits of the, of the Nephilim, Nephilim offspring, okay? There's, there's a variety of ways that 
the word spirit shows up. And it's the same Greek word. It's the same pneuma all throughout the, the New Testament. It's the same ruch all throughout the Old Testament. And so the New American Standard Bible, when they published this, they made the decision that the reference here, the Spirit who is from God, must be God the Holy Spirit. And so they capitalized the letter S there. And I think that's unfortunate. Because um, if it requires the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in order to learn the Word of God, then how did any Old Testament saint ever learn the Word of God? Because very few Old Testament saints received the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. They got saved and their human spirit was made alive. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. So every Old Testament saint received a living human spirit from God. They were born from above. They were born uh, uh, by the will of God. And with that living human spirit they may know the things freely given to us by God. As Proverbs 20 says, that living human spirit becomes the lamp of Yahweh. The Nur Yahweh is the living human spirit. Alright. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit. Now I'm okay with that one being capitalized because God the Holy Spirit has always been the human teacher. He's always been the one that conveyed uh, doctrine to human beings even those human beings that didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it was still God the Holy Spirit that taught them the Word of God. I don't really have a problem with that one being capitalized. Combining spiritual with spiritual. Okay? Maybe a, a good illustration of this comes in, in Romans 8 where His Spirit testifies with our spirit. So a nice parallel text here to uh, 1 Corinthians 2.13 would be um, Romans 8. Goodness. The word spirit shows up a lot in this chapter. There we go. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The first one's capitalized because it's God the Holy Spirit teaching the Word of God. The second one is not capitalized because it refers to our living human spirit. So if the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit, with our spirit, to our spirit, that that's the link. That's what allows a human, a born-again human, to receive the things of the Spirit of God because they must be spiritually appraised. So take uh, Romans 8, 16, relate it back to 1 Corinthians 2, 13. I think you've got a good tandem there. <clears throat> so if you're an unbeliever and you don't have a living human spirit, okay, different people model this in different ways. Some say you don't have any spirit at all. That you're just dichotomous as body and soul and no spirit whatsoever. I think it's preferable to, to think of it that you have a living body, a living soul, and a dead human spirit. That it does exist, but through the traducian procreation that at your physical birth, it was a, it was a dead thing within, uh, within the immaterial part of your existence. That, that's why you have verbs such as quickening. That, that dead spirit was then quickened, it was then made alive. 
in, uh, in the process there. Anyway, there's, there's debates on that, some fine-tuning where different uh, theologians have different views. I don't fight over it. I just say, all right, that's, that's one way to model it. Here's another way to model it. And uh, anyway, don't you dare go to somebody else under a different pastor and say, well, you need to straighten your pastor out because Pastor Bob teaches it like this. All right, goodness. Back to First uh, Corinthians. See, and I think the, the reason why this becomes problematic is that combining spiritual with spiritual. So we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, lowercase, human spirit, from God, so that we may, re- we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. And I prefer just to leave it like that. Don't, don't put nouns in there, just combining spiritual with spiritual. Because it's spiritually spoken and it's spiritually received, it's spiritually heard. And uh, this is what happens as the Holy Spirit communicates to our human spirit, co- uh, combining spiritual with spiritual. See, And if you don't combine spiritual with spiritual, if you're not connecting, it's like trying to listen to an FM broadcast and all you've got is an AM radio. All right? You can't listen to an FM broadcast if all you've got is an AM receiver. But if you have a living human spirit, then you can receive the spiritual tra- uh, transmissions, which in my analogy... Uh, go forth on the FM radio band, okay? So you can think of the soul as the AM receiver and the spirit as the FM receiver and then uh, the, the, the soul has rational processes whereby it can see and learn it's empirical, it can observe, it can do science and measure things and think and remember and correlate. That's all the mental function of the soul. But the spiritual function requires a living human spirit. All right. And I like that metaphor. I like that analogy. To me, the AM, FM is useful. I think the FM is where you get all the good stereo um, music and, and, and whatever else. And if all you got is that AM radio, then you got a left ear speaker only, and you're just getting half the message. You don't have access to anything spiritual. All right. But a natural man, the soulish man, Somebody without a living human spirit. He's not pneumatikos because he doesn't have a living human spirit. He is psuchikos. He is soulish. He is, he is, he is a, a living human body. He's a living soul. He has physical life, but he doesn't have spiritual life. So he is a psuchikos man. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised without a living human spirit. I hope this makes sense. I hope you get this and, and understand why if, if, if you take 1 Corinthians out of the New Testament and try to apply it to an Old Testament believer, you know, somebody that doesn't have the portfolio of assets we have in the church age, they don't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they don't have a spiritual gift, they're not baptized in the union with Jesus Christ, but clearly they're saved They're born again, they're alive, they can learn the Word of God. The Holy Spirit's going to communicate to their human spirit. All right. I think that gets us a better understanding here of this chapter. 
Then when you cross into chapter 3, you realize that there's a carnality issue. Here's what happens when you have a believer who is spiritual, but he's grieving, quenching, and resisting the Holy Spirit. He's gone carnal. He, he is saved, so he has spiritual life, but he, is, he doesn't lose that salvation. He doesn't go back to being a soulish man. His living human spirit never dies. It's eternal life for that living human spirit. But because of his carnality, he now has a different issue. It's the sin issue. It's called carnality. He's, he's not uh, psuchikos uh, for soulish. He is sarkikos for fleshly. In other words, he has subjected his spirit under the sovereignty of his sin nature. And by subjecting his living human spirit under the sovereignty of his flesh, of his sin nature, then uh, he's very impacted into what he can process. And he can... Uh, he can nurse on some milk uh, as a carnal believer. So that's different from the unbeliever. The unbeliever can't even take in milk. Alright, so we have those issues there. Now being that we are spiritually alive as born again believers, we then become the lamp of God's light. The Nur Yahweh is how Proverbs twenty. 27 describes it. The lamp of God's light. And so understanding this light, Matthew 6, 22 and 23. Matthew 6. And understanding the way Jesus teaches this, He's drawing from the Old Testament, He's expanding upon it, He's teaching these principles. The eye is the lamp of the body. So in other words, we have to take in before we can shine out. And what we take in, light or darkness, is going to either benefit us or be a problem. The eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, it's the gate. Your eyes, your ears, you've got to be careful what you see and what you hear, what you're reading, what you're listening to, how you damage your soul or how you benefit your soul. Where are your eyes fixed? So then, if, the, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. Makes sense? Okay. And that's what you want it to be. You want to be able to take in God's revelation. You want to be a depository because this is what He has designed us to be. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And this is the thing, I think too many Christians go into carnality and the first thing that happens in carnality is their eyes go bad. First thing that happens in carnality is with a cloudy vision they start staring at darkness all the time. And staring at the darkness is more than just meaning that they're, that they're conformed to this age. It actually has a soul effect. It has a spiritual effect. It is causing the human spirit, which is the lamp, to go bad. So if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? That's why Satan would much rather use a carnal believer than an unbeliever. Because a carnal believer is actually a greater darkness. Ever think about that? a greater darkness. Because with a living human spirit that should be full of light, 
Instead, it's been darkened. The foolish heart has been darkened. How great is the darkness? It speaks of the, <clears throat> the, the, the magnitude, the degree, the severity, the, the tragedy. Because there's no need for it. There's no need for it. This is a believer that should have light. This is a believer that should have their eyes clear as they fix their eyes on Jesus, as they keep seeking the things above, as they uh, are continuously renewed in the spirit of their mind. Instead, they're conformed to this age, and it's how great is the darkness. It's horrible. John 1. There's some patterns here, and it goes back to Jesus and the nature of Jesus as the God-man and the nature of humans. It's kind of curious. Angels are described as angels of light, but they're not lamps. Isn't that interesting? So here's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is God the Son before He became flesh. This is the God-man called the Logos in John, called Wisdom in Proverbs 8, was with God and is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Remember God the Son, the God-man, is the Father's agent of creation. The Father is the architect, Jesus is the master builder. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came to be that has come to be. Now notice, in Him was life. This is significant. In Him was life. And what is that life? See, there is a relationship between God and man, and that relationship has a mediator, and there's only one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In Him was life. And we've got to learn more and study more about it and connect it with other passages to understand. Is this, is this just then an element of essence and so the Father has it and the Holy Spirit has it and it's just part of being God? Or is there something extra? Is there something in addition to that? Is this something that is a, is a uh, feature of the begetting when the Father begat His humanity? Is this something to do with His spiritual life? the human spirit that the God-man possessed from the moment of his hypostatic union. That life, that Zoe, is the light of humanity. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, overpower it, extinguish it. So there's light, okay? And it's connected with the God-man, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, it may, and so if you have the Son, you have life. And that life is light. Let's look at uh, John 5. Notice um, they were all mad at him because he was making himself out to be equal to God. Jesus said, my father is working until now. I myself am working. You know what? The father did have a Sabbath rest on day 7. You know what he did on day (laughs) 8? He went back to work. God's been working ever since. The pattern was there. We're going to study this. My father is working. I myself am working. Oh, that made them mad. Calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. 
So he said, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. So there is leadership and there is submission. And it's not insulting, it's not demeaning. Jesus is not lessened. He's glorified as he glorifies the father and the father is glorified as he glorifies the son. The father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. I believe the church age is the start of those greater works and the, uh, the, the millennium and the fullness of time is even greater. Greater works that the Father is showing the Son and then the Son Himself, the everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The ages to come are going to, are going to apply this. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. All right, now here we go. So think about this. Think about how God breathed into that dust body and Adam became a living soul. So think about this. Think about the function of the Father in providing life and now related to the Son as the life provision. Even so the Son gives Zoe, and this is Zoe all through here. John uses Zoe for his life vocabulary. The only, it's the only life that has Ionios attached to it, that has eternal attached to it, is the Zoe life. All right. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. With life comes judgment. Of course, with eternal life comes absolute judgment. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me. See, when you hear the gospel, you are trusting in the faithfulness of the one who promised. That God the Father is the one who sent Jesus Christ. God the Father is the one who promised. That he who receives the Son, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So this is the moment of your salvation. This is when you go from being a spiritually dead unbeliever, Adamic unbeliever, and you get entered into the second Adam. You get, you're given this new life. Passed out of death into life. And this has always been the case. Old Testament, New Testament alike. This, this is, is not unique to the body of Christ after Pentecost. This is being preached before Pentecost. This is John 5. So, passing out of death into life. And everybody in Adam is dead. That's why they need to believe for eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live There's a a double resurrection coming up for the spiritually alive and the spiritually dead because even the unbeliever, that soul is an eternal soul. It's in the image of God. How do you kill the image of God? How, How do you annihilate the image of God? That unbeliever, that soul with the dead human spirit is still the image of God. And it's going to come out of the ground. It'll be resurrected for a resurrection of judgment called the great white throne. Just as the Father has life in Himself, now notice, even so, He, God the Father, gave to the Son also 
to have life in himself. This is why we start to distinguish between the absolute attributes and essence of Trinity. We, we distinguish between what deity possesses in the essence box, what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have co-equally, co-eternally forever as being a different study than what the Son receives from the Father at a point, the boundary moment of time, the alpha moment of the beginning. So he gave to the Son also to have Zoe in himself. And so at the moment of this life-giving, at the moment of this, what else do we call life-giving? Begetting. Today I have begotten thee. At the moment of this begetting, when from the source of the Father to the person of the Son, a gift was supplied. It was a life gift. The Son now has a life He didn't have before the Father gave it. So that's not deity. Deity is immutable. Deity is eternal. Deity doesn't change. It's not deity plus. We're not tweaking perfection to give Him something that improves deity also doesn't diminish from the Father either, by the way. Okay, But this is now the living human spirit that Jesus Christ received. When God the Son became the God-man. When God the Son now has a human nature. Where did He get it? The Father begat it. The Father breathed it. The Father conveyed that life. He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself and gave Him authority. So the first person to receive this kind of life ever from the Father, called the firstborn of all creation, okay? He's also called the Son of Man. Gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Why does He have the title Son of Man? Not because he was truly human, born of a virgin in a Bethlehem manger. That's where he got his body. He receives the title Son of Man when he becomes the God-man. When he receives the living human spirit. This title Son of Man is a glory. This is why the Son of David is greater than David. This is why the Son of Man is greater than Adam. He is the second Adam because his body was formed secondly. But the first Adam, whose dust body was formed before Jesus' material body, that first Adam was made in the image of God. Remember? And who is the image of God? Jesus, the God-man. So the Father has life in himself and gave to the Son to have life in himself. And so he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And he's the Son of Man who came to seek and to save that which is lost. And the second Adam came to remedy, to reconcile what the first Adam destroyed. So do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, believers and unbelievers alike, and will come forth those who did the good, in other words, those who responded to the gospel, to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil, in other words, those that rejected the gospel, to a resurrection of judgment. 
they will stand before the great white throne and be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. There's a resurrection for believers and a resurrection for unbelievers. All right. How about 2 Corinthians 4? Here's another text with lamps and lights. Verse 3 says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to the perishing ones. It is veiled to the unbeliever, the spiritually dead, the perishing ones, in whose case the God of this world or the God of this age, I believe Satan has more freedom than he's ever had in any previous age. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the image of God. Again, who's the image of God? Jesus Christ is the image of God. The life he provides is the light of man. And Satan will do everything he can to keep the unbeliever from seeing the light of man. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now here's a verse. Take this verse, take 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and put it side by side with Proverbs 20, 27. The lamp of Yahweh is the spirit of man. The, the ner Yahweh, nishmath adam. The lamp of Yahweh, the spirit of man. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. How about that? We're an earthen vessel primarily to be the lamp, to be the conduit of God's light. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We can't brag. There's no boasting in evangelism. Anyway, I like this. This spiritual life is necessary for learning the Word of God and being judged by the criteria of its light. So if when we are spiritually alive, we can take in the Word of God, and as we take in the Word of God, it convicts us. It's the lamp unto our feet, the light unto our path. It shines on where we should go and what we should do. And as Hebrews 4 says, it's a critical judge of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. As Psalm 119 says, and this is an unbeliever without the permanent, not an unbeliever, an Old Testament believer. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So where do we want to hide that word? Well, if we're designed to be a lamp, let's hide it in our heart. Hebrews 4, verses 12. And see, here's an Old Testament saint without the, the church age position, possession blessings that we have. This believer, whoever he was, I don't think it was Davidic, some, it's common that they take him as Davidic, but I think he's on the death march to Babylon. Okay, that's a legend, but as the case may be, he composes this over the 22 days, every strophe, eight verses. And this one launches the, the noon, this is the noon strophe. 
And here's an Old Testament believer. He's not baptized into union with Christ. He's not seated at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't have a spiritual gift. He is not um, (coughs) uh, permanently indwelled by God the Holy Spirit. He does not have the earnest of a heavenly inheritance because he doesn't have a heavenly inheritance. He's part of Israel. He has a tribal inheritance within the national future blessings of Israel in a future coming kingdom. He does not have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ like you and I have. And yet, does he process doctrine? Oh, you bet he processes doctrine. Day and night he's processing doctrine. He's meditating upon it. He's actually advancing beyond many of his peers. There's even elders who should know better that are mocking him. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What a blessing. The word just spotlights things. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. The word of God is alive and powerful, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. How many times have you heard that verse cited? Okay. Anyway, all thanksgiving and blessings to uh, the Lord and his faithful servant, uh, R.B. Thien, in Bracket Church. How about that? Heard this verse thousands of times. He preached over 10,000 in his lifetime. And uh, this was his call to worship. This is what happens. The light shines and it exposes things. Darkness? Now I didn't put it, I should have put added it to the slide. There's uh, the light shines in the darkness, right? John 1. All the uses of light in this chapter. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Came as a witness. This is John the Baptist to testify about the light. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. What do you think God was talking about when he said, let there be light? Sun, moon, and stars don't show up till day four. Don't confuse day one with day four. Oh, we're going to have some fun. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Of course, the natural man, the soulish man, the spiritually dead man, light exposes things. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is the same doing evil in John 5. This is the unbeliever hating the light. But he who practices the truth, this is the the one who did good deeds, this is the one who becomes a practitioner of the way, the truth, and the life, the one who receives the Son. It's it's an idiom that expresses your salvation status. Comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. When you're walking in the light, you've got nothing to hide. Nothing to hide. You say, search me, O God. Know me. Search me. See if there be any hurtful way within me. Search me. Try me. You, you want everything to be exposed. Because if something's being hidden, I want to stop it being hidden. I'm probably the one hiding it. <laughs> okay? So that means uh, you've got to convict my conscience. You've got to expose it. So it's the beauty of light. And I, I just love it. The, the near Yahweh, Nishmat Adam is such a promise. Adamic breath. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. 
searching all the innermost parts of his being. Searching all the innermost parts of his being. Let me get back to that. Proverbs 20, 27b. So I spent all this time talking about the first half of the verse. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. Maybe I did overkill on that half of the verse. The second half of the verse. Okay? Because these are, this is a synthetic parallelism. It's not contradictory. Part B is not the but statement that, that contradicts part A. That's, that's very common in Proverbs, but not here. These are both saying the same thing. They're building. The second one builds on the first one. So the spirit of man is a lamp of the Lord. And what a great place to put a light. Okay? Inside of you. <laughs> you know? And it's like, you know, a flashlight outside of you or in a drawer in a different room or somewhere. You know, that didn't do any good. You want the light inside the refrigerator. <laughs> okay? You open the door, the light comes on. Great place for a light. Put the light inside. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of the being. Remember? Who knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man within him? So put a light in there. Your living human spirit is a lamp reflecting the light of God's life as He puts it into you and as He uh, transforms who you are by the Word of God. Just shines that light brighter and brighter and brighter. And the brighter it gets and some of those dark corners get exposed like, uh, okay. That is not fun, but we need it. Say, thank you, Lord. You know, it's that little nook and cranny of the attic. I kept meaning to get around to it one of these days, you know, but it's easy to put off. It's easy to just pretend it's not there. It's easy to forget about it. That darkened corner with all the cobwebs and, you know, if you don't think about it, then you don't think about it. <laughs> if you don't see it, out of sight, out of mind. And just, oh, I don't want to, because the more I think about it, the light shines on it and I realize, oh, I got a, I got a problem. I got to make a, a thought adjustment here. searching all the innermost parts of his being. Thank God the Word of God does that. There was a Facebook post. In fact, Doug shared it. Thank you, Doug. Yesterday, the day before, whenever that was, that quit trying to change the Bible in your generation. The Bible is written to change you. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? And here's humans coming along trying to change the Bible. Well, what business do we have to do that? We're not God's co-editors, fellow co-authors, improving upon what He revealed, telling God that He got it wrong. His word is eternal, not one jot, not one tittle. All right. Next week we'll come back, and I want to spend some more time on grace and truth, and I don't know we'll take a whole hour to do it. We, we did a grace and truth study. It took two or three weeks to do it back in chapter 19. And it would be useful to remind ourselves of those things again, um, although it means we're delaying the end of chapter 20. But uh, chesed and ameth, grace and truth, loyalty and truth, preserve the king. And he upholds his throne by righteousness. The glory that we have to look forward to with Jesus Christ, the, the messianic king on the uh, Davidic throne, this is what the millennium is going to feature Grace and truth, chesed and ameth. And we did a study on that back in chapter 19, understanding that the ideal man is conformed to the image of God's Son, full of grace and truth. Remember, the law came by Moses, grace and truth were revealed by Jesus Christ. 
and the blessings to, of seeing the passages of the Old Testament where chesed and ameth are linked together. It's like a marriage. It's like kissing. All right? Grace and truth. All right, so this is where we'll pick up uh, next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for opening our eyes. And Father, we understand that um, there are different pastors with different convictions. There are pastors who teach hypostatic union in a different way. They teach incarnation in a different way. They equate them as if they're the same thing. That uh, God the Son did not become the God-man until... uh, until the uh, virgin birth in the Bethlehem manger. And, uh, and that's fine, Father. I don't, I'm not attacking those men, and I'm certainly not uh, condemning them. But I just thank you for being faithful. Thank you for this study. Thank you for this truth. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.